0: And now, dear Father, as we bow in prayer, uh, we recognize you're the God of the universe. We come to the great source here. And uh, we revere you as God. We applaud you for bringing your Son as Savior, Christ our Lord. And then as he left, you gave to us the gift of your Holy Spirit as comfort and guide and convictor. And then... You sealed the deal, really, with a finished copy of your word. So if we ever wondered the detail of Christianity, we we have a Bible, and we are privileged to know how you want us to live, and so we pray, Lord, in this season, our hearts would be fervent to be close to you, devoted to be walking with you in faith. The disciples never asked, Lord, teach us to teach or teach us to lead. But they did ask, and we ask it today, teach us to pray. That we walk in communion with you in tight relationship because we stay connected. That's really our prayer, that we be prayerful people always throughout the day checking in. Many of us in the room are holding cards with a, a name or two or three or six or eight names on it of people that are heavy on our hearts who need to trust Christ. I pray over those names, not knowing them. But I pray over those names. And it's not that numbers matter that much to us, Lord. They really don't. But every number represents a person. And every person represents someone that you love. And every person that you love, Christ died for. And so, because of that, we pray for people, name by name, number by number, because it really does matter. Tenderize our hearts, Lord. I pray to to be people of prayer who always talk and listen to you. And in that, those commune moments, uh, may we find real spiritual community with you. And may we live to your glory, to the honor of your Son. And I pray this in the name, anticipating the resurrection again this weekend. Pray to the, to the name of the resurrected Savior and Lord Christ, our own. We pray these things. And the church says, amen? Amen. So next Sunday, 30, 10, and 11.30, okay? Come bring a friend, come early, and uh, enjoy the day. Now. I'm in John 17 again this morning. This is part three of, of uh, Jesus' prayer before going to the cross. John 17, when you find that, then go to Philippians chapter one, if you would, just open your Bible to Philippians one. Oftentimes I ask for a show of hands, okay? About, I ask a question and then I ask, how many have done that? And I ask for a show of hands. This one, don't raise your hand, okay? But have you ever gone to prayer before? Don't raise your hand. Have you ever gone to prayer before, before God and you say, God, I'm out of options here? And then you begin to pray because you're desperate. You ever done that? Yeah. And that's why I say, and, and you can write this down for notes, prayer should be our first resort, our, our, our first response, not our last resort. Prayer should be our first response, not our last resort. We should go to the Lord first. But we've gone to the Lord when we're desperate. We go to the Lord at times and pray because we think we're dying, you know. Did any of you see the video of Tom Brady jumping off the ledge? Did you see this? You need to go see it because ah, it's not really him. It can't be him because he's too expensive to be jumping off a ledge somewhere in, you know, and he, he jumps and I'm thinking, uh, he's going to die. And then I think, uh, if that were me, I would, that would, the video would be one large scream, you know, oh Lord, here I come. He jumped off a large ledge, uh. And into a water pond. And I, you've had moments like that where you think, I'm going to die. There are other times you pray because you're desperate because you're not dying, but someone else next to you is. Or you're you're wit's end, you tried everything and you cannot wiggle your way out. You're in trouble and you know it. But then there are times you've prayed You pray, but you're desperate, but then you're desperate, but you're desperate for vision as well. And you pray with a real sense of a future and vision. You can almost see it. You pray over your children. Oh, God, may they grow up to love you and to honor you. May they learn to respect you, and may they be honest and hardworking, great people of faith. I want them to have Christian homes. And when they marry, may they marry a Christian spouse and uh, may they have a happy home. Maybe you've prayed for the future of the nation, for godly leaders for the nation. You've prayed during wartime that we would not only have peace, but victory and righteousness would prevail and there would be better days ahead. So you pray, you're desperate, but then you also see a better day, a better nation, a better family, a better world. Those are prayers not only for desperation, but those are prayers of vision as well. And it's important that we get that distinction because when Jesus was about to die, an ugly criminal's death, he doesn't pray just desperation. He prays desperation with that vision. That's what we see with him. He's prayed, we've understood this from John, the first part of chapter 17. He prayed for you and I to know him really well and to get done what needs to be done, finish the work you called us to do. We've also known that he prayed for his disciples. Now he's going to pray for the church going forward, that those who follow in the name of Christ, that they would be one, one. Pick it up in John chapter 17, verse 20. My prayer, these are Jesus' words, is not for them alone, just for the disciples alone, he's saying. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. In other words, this is future Christians. He's talking about those who will follow Jesus down the road. Think about that for a moment. Here's a guy who's about to die, and it's going to be an ugly death, and he knows that, and yet he's praying for the future followers who will band together and he sees that church. No one else knows that's gonna happen. He sees this church, this actual local church, and he prays for us. Think about that. That's amazing, humbling. He knows his plan is to be Savior of the world, pay for the sins of the world for all time. He knows that plan will succeed. He knows he will rise from the dead. He will go back to the Father. He also knows those bands of believers will meet on hillsides and in houses and on rooftops, and then they'll eventually build buildings of their own, and they will begin to reach the the corners of the world, if there were corners. They will go everywhere with the gospel. So he's praying that that those generations of believers, verse 20, I I pray, Father, that they will believe in me and that they be one in their message. I'm looking to you, Father. This is really humbling. You could put your name in there. I pray also for those who will believe, for Bob and Joachim and Mary and Alice and Franklin. I'm praying for you by name that they'll believe the message. Now, when Jesus prays that, he's really praying like a priest. We don't view Jesus as a priest very often. The Bible says he's a great high priest, um, so he really he's the ultimate priest. But if you were to go to Exodus 28, this is a cool sideline to this. If you were to go to Exodus 28, you can take notes and go read that on your own. You'll find that there are 12 tribes in the Old Testament. Each tribe had its own priest. Each priest wore different armaments. They had different kind of clothing. And they'd actually have a breastplate or a shield. or They'd have a helmet. They'd wear different pieces. But they would put on those pieces and represent their tribe. So when the 12 got together, it would be there. Naphtali, that's my tribe. Yeah, and when he'd stand up, all the people in Naphtali would go, Naphtali! You know, it's just like Sweet 16. Everybody's, you know, rooting for their home team and wearing their colors. That would be the 12 tribes. The other guys would be going, no, Benjamin! You know, it's just it's the 12 tribes. And these 12 guys each represent one twelfth of that whole kingdom. And when they do, when they go to pray, they take all those cares from those 12 too. They represent them. They're the priest. Okay? Now, take all that concept now, and that's what Jesus does. Hebrews chapter 5, the great high priest, he, his tribe, guess what his tribe is? Those who believe the message. They're called Christians from all over the world. And he goes to the father And he puts on the uniform, and he says, I represent all those who will believe in my name. That is really humbling. That is an amazing kind of grace. To think that the night he's about to be killed in a humiliating kind of way, he is praying for us as a great high priest. If you ever doubted his love or his devotion, it it vanishes knowing that he stands before God the Father in the uniform saying, I pray for my clan who follow verse 21 that all of them will be one what's he praying that they'll be unified that there will be such unity father that they are just like you and me he says the unity is so good that when they see those believers they actually will see Jesus people will see Jesus in those believers he wants it so united it's like the father and son are so tight that's the way Jesus wants to be with his followers may they also be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, Jesus is praying for unity, and why? So the world will believe. Get this. Unity is the ticket for people to believe in Jesus. And when they see disunity, they think it's a phony. They think this isn't going to work. and they, He wants such a clear unity that, that he wants such a clear unity that that there is no division in the church and and that gives a clarion call that Christianity really works because so many different kinds of people in different places of the world are so diverse and yet they seem to agree with each other and they seem to get along so well that would be convincing pick it up again at verse 22 i have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one i and them and them and and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Get that? Unity again. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even as you have loved me. That you love them even as you have loved me. Here's the problem with this unity thing. The stats tell us it's not working. People are open to spirituality and they're open to spiritual talks. But oftentimes, they think, I might think clearly about Jesus, but I really don't like his church. I don't like his followers. Why? Because there's not any unity among them. It's fairly divisive and petty. And what that pettiness does is it keeps people not just from the church. It keeps people from Jesus. I hope you get that. It's not just a matter of keeping them out of church. It actually keeps them away from Jesus. And don't misunderstand, some people search for the truth, but always on their own terms and in their own way, with their own conditions, and they want to find certain things a certain way, so they're preconditioned to only find certain parts of the truth because they don't want to hear personal responsibility. I, and I get all that. But there's no place in the church for, that Jesus died for to build walls around and to say, this is our section of the, of the kingdom because Jesus' arms are wide open. The blood covers all, not just segments, but all. And so there's no reason for the disunity, none. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, came to Christ later than other apostles, and yet when he follows the Lord, he tends to embrace the truth. He was an attorney, and he was really truth-based. And when he lands in jail for preaching the good news, people go crazy and they, they preach the gospel with love but then they preach it with other motives. Some people get angry and some are scared. Some are thinking about riots and Paul goes, hey, wait, wait, wait. Philippians chapter one. Here's his response. Verse 15. It is true some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry but others out of good will. You've been to churches like that, haven't you? Have you ever been to a church that uh, preached preach the gospel and yet it's, it's very loving and others you go to church and they preach the gospel but it's real hateful? it's rivalry it, there are times i've been in church services and maybe you have too where a guy is in the preaching and he's going i don't want you to go to hell i want you to go to heaven And he, he's really loving you and the next guy you go here he goes you're going to hell and i think partly he's he's gleeful over that you know he's a little sick there's a rivalry there crazy he says some do this out of envy and rivalry others out of goodwill the latter do so out of love verse 16 knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. They know God's got a bigger plan here. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition. In other words, the motives are all messed up. Not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me in my chains. I'm already in jail, but he says, this could get worse because of their envy, their, their, their bad motives. But he goes, what does it matter, verse 18? The important thing that is in every way, whether false motives are true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. He's saying, Christ is preached. That's the good thing. So let it be. Every church isn't your kind of church. Every church isn't my kind of church. But if they're preaching the good news of Christ, personal faith, the inspiration of the word, just the fact that the word matters, then leave them alone. Let there be unity. And where it's questionable, let it just remain there. And you can just learn to have a spirit of humility that says we can learn to get along we can rejoice when other churches succeed and do well and jesus actually prays not only for that unity but secondly jesus prays for a great relationship with him because he knows the tighter the relationship the better the transparency verse 24 father i want Those who have been given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me, get that, before the creation of the world. You loved me even before this even happened. Therefore, we can be open and be honest. There can be real transparency. Um, Here's the second reason that unity is so essential. It's so people on the outside of faith will sense that god's love is real it's authentic it's deep it's intimate it's lasting it's not conditional it's not somehow manipulative it's totally wholesome and they know that because they look at christians and that's what they see wholesome balanced people This presents the right picture of the father's relationship to the son and the son's relationship to his kids. That's us. That, oh my, how we love each other. There's such a spirit of unity. Sometimes when an unchurched person engages me in that conversation, one of the things that'll happen is automatically they'll they'll just go to... you, you, You know, Christians can be weird, right? So they'll go to you know, they'll they'll pick something weird. And they'll always pick out something that I just go, yeah, you, you probably have a point. You know what the best thing to do is to go, yeah, you probably have a point. But they'll ask questions of denominations. And I'll say to them, you know what, you're right. The only difference is uh, um, between the denominations, oftentimes there's a little bit of theology or um, that there's an emphasis of a particular theological brand. So they take one area and lift it, make it bigger. Oftentimes, though, I found denominations really come because of history. How you came to America, and where you landed in church, and what ethnic group was there. So it's a big history piece, and it's, just, it's always a big culture piece. So sometimes people will attend SBC, and they'll say to me, you know, I'm not going to come back. And I'll say, oh, that's too bad. Why are you not going to come back? Well, the preaching's okay. They'll say that. Preaching's okay. Okay. But then they'll say something like, "But the, I don't get the music, it's, you know, it's really repetitive. It, it just goes over and over. And I go, oh yeah, like kind of like the hallelujah chorus. Like, hallelujah, hallelujah. Do that 24 times and then go hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. I hate that too, don't you? Yeah. But do you know what they're wanting? They're wanting something way more traditional. Do you know what I'll say to them? You're right, I, and I'll point them to a church down the road, up the road, around the corner, I say, this is a good Bible teaching church, and they have a choir with robes and music that you like, but they preach the same gospel we do. And then I'll tell them this, and remember us, because when your kids grow up, it's not going to be good. So remember us, because you'll want to drop your kids off back here, because they're not going to put up with that very long. And you know what? They'll thank me for that. And then they'll say, why are Christians so weird? I go, well, you know, people are weird. Aren't they? They are. And just because you come to Christ doesn't mean you untangle everything in your life. The tree is still pretty naughty, the family tree. And uh, I didn't say naughty. I said naughty, okay? The tree is still pretty naughty. And people are just weird. But it has to do with history. It has to do with culture. Okay, now it's time for a show of hands. How many of you at some point in your life um, were part of uh, a family? (laughs) Okay, good. So you'll identify with this. You know that I come from a family that has some really great, rich heritage. Uh, My dad's in heaven, just passed away uh, four years ago, actually on Good Friday. His first Sunday in heaven was Easter. Is that cool or what? Huh? I mean, we cried, we bawled. I mean, I got—I preached Easter morning, and then got on a plane that night, flew the night, and uh, to go be with uh, family. But that was a wonderful—I mean, think what? How wonderful could that be? It's a great thing. You, my dad was a pastor, trusted Christ as a kid, came from a Christian home, went to uh, went to a Christian college, uh, went to seminary, has PhD in theology. I mean, he's he's a smart guy, but godly guy, great character. The guy who. Prayed him into ministry. He's a guy by the name of George Johnson, who's an old Swede that was a steel mill worker who prayed every morning at the church at like five o'clock in the morning. He prayed for all the teenage boys in the church. And I I can't count, but I think somewhere around 10, from that, my dad's generation ended up going into ministry, either overseas or in the States. It it was a powerhouse for for people going into mission work and pastoral work. And I, I largely carried it to this this steel mill work guy, he's a great guy. So my, I, my dad's side of the family is really godly, rich in heritage, wonderful. My mom's side, not so much. My mother's maiden name is Younger. If you know anything in American history, particularly in the Middle West, you'll realize uh, she's from the Younger family which teamed up with Jesse James and what were called the Younger Brothers and they um, robbed banks and shot people and, but if you were to ask them, they would say, well, they died, but it wasn't our fault. It was their choice to die. We were just shooting. It would it just, okay, so get over it. And then, but they were robbers, I mean, bank robbers and stuff. This is why, this is why I don't ever go home for Thanksgiving anymore, actually. No, I'm just kidding, I do. Um, but we never give a pistol to my mother, that's for sure. <laughs> and how many of you are going to, you're going to, to tweet my mother right now and say, Dave's talking about you again. So I don't care because she can't get the tweet because she's in jail. But anyway, no, I'm just kidding. She's not. She's not. <laughs> she's in a retirement community in Florida because Jerry Seinfeld said, when you get old, that's where you have to go. And if Jerry said that, then it's got to be true. So, So anyway, my mother comes from a slightly twisted history you know have criminals in the, in the family history now her brother was a pastor was a, a bible college president and a, a pastor and a godly man uh, and there's, there's there's godly people in the line but there's a lot of twisted stuff but everybody has that somewhere weird and the only difference is when you go to family reunion and you got a weird uncle Harold or Weird Aunt Alice, or something. You just put up with it, right? You just go, yeah. She tells that story every summer at the family reunion. Yeah. And you know, we act like we've never heard it before. We, we laugh at the same places. And why do you do that? Because you're family. You just learn to get along, right? And you say, yeah. She always brings the same potato salad. No one likes it. We always take a scoop, <laughs> drop it off. And she thinks we all like it, you know. You have a family of people, people like that, right? Do you ever get fruitcake from people? You just go. It's fruitcake. It's like a brick. We use it as a doorstop. We do not eat this stuff. Every year, they're just weird people. They just keep sending. Fruit. They love my fruitcake every year. They're just amazed at it, you know. And we're not eating that fruitcake. You know, it's in a landfill somewhere. That's because every family has weirdness to it. Because you come to Christ doesn't mean all the weirdness comes out. It just means we're family. So we learn to get along. And that's all Jesus is asking. He's saying, I've covered this with my blood, so just get along with each other and love each other deeply from the heart. Make every opportunity to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You care for each other so well that when they see you, they see Jesus who's connected to the Father. And then they'll believe and they'll say, this makes total sense. That kind of transparency makes total sense. One more point. Jesus prays that we will know that we are loved. Verse 25. Righteous Father, he prays, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. He's saying, I want this to be so tight that they know Jesus is in them and they live that out, and it, it, it lets them know they are really, really loved. Now, we've all been around kids who don't feel loved. And what do they do? Uh, you, you have a baby, and then two, three years later, you have another baby. What does the older baby say now? Oh, You don't love me anymore. You spend all that time with that little one. And, no, no, I love you too. And then you have a third baby, and the, the first baby says to the second baby, see, they don't love you either. At least they love me, I was born first. It's that firstborn thing, you know, it's birth order. Secondborn knows they can't beat them up, so they find a way to negotiate. And you have all that competitive stuff, that whole dynamic happening. Why is that happening? Because they don't really feel loved. And what Jesus is praying is, I want them to, to know so badly that they are loved so much that they'll actually relax about who they are and where they are and what's happening in their lives? Because it doesn't really matter, because they're loved. What Jeremiah said: love with an everlasting kind of love. And then there's no need to act out. And then they face when that happens is they face the world with a holy kind of confidence. So when you know you are loved, you can move forward in life, and you know that you know you don't have to create drama. You don't have to because you you know you're loved. Most insecure people will create some kind of stir to get attention. Go into any school in the community and talk to the guidance counselors. They'll tell you, why is he acting out? He just wants attention. If he can't get good attention, he'll go for bad attention. And he's getting bad attention right now. And what is the big issue? The big issue is they don't know their love. And that's a church issue. Because in our communities, if we would love people with an unconditional love, accept people unconditionally, Some of this stuff would fade away. Some of the weirdness would fade away, and they would find Christ to be absolutely, all in all, all we need. He is sufficient for all we need for life and for godliness when they see Christians getting along. Okay, one more story, and then I'm done. The guy's name is Andy Stanley. He pastors the North Point Community Church outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Andy is a great theologian, great pastor, really good guy. You can YouTube him and catch a message of his online. A wonderful guy. He's the son of Dr. Charles Stanley, who's written, I don't know, fifty books or something, but he's been on TV since I was a kid. He's a national broadcast guy out of Atlanta as well, the first Baptist Church in Atlanta. Dr. Charles Stanley's a godly man as well, a wonderful guy. Andy went to college, went to seminary worked for his dad for a few years, and then went to the north side of Atlanta, planted North Point Community Church. They met in facilities that were rented because they didn't know what was going to happen. And as they rented facilities, they outgrew them, and the place was bursting. It had lots of people attending. He's a great communicator. They had some really good things happening. But the church just was booming. It was a wonderful ministry. So they looked to buy property, but they knew they needed to have not just a few acres. They knew they needed to have lots and lots of acres because they need parking, they need facility and recreation, and they wanted room to expand. So they were thinking long term. So we need a big piece of property, which means they're not going to be down in the hub of the city and even outside just a bit risky. They may need to go out a little further so they can get a big parcel of land. They finally land on one that they can get and afford. And when they see it, Andy realizes I can't buy that because right next to that is a real tiny one row of cars kind of church. It was a Calvary Chapel church. Calvary Chapel is a wonderful denomination out of Costa Mesa. We sing, actually, a lot of the music comes out of Calvary Chapel. But it's a little Calvary Chapel church, just a handful of people, one row of cars. And he's going to build a mega building right next to this little church. And he feels bad like that's just not right but they don't have anywhere else to build. So he puts off the decision for a while. Finally, they decide, we, just, we have to go with this, I'm sorry. So they buy the property, close the deal, build the building, put in acres of parking next to this little postage stamp of a church. Andy moves the ministry there. It flourishes and does well. They've gone to multiple services. It's going very well, and one day he goes to lunch. These are Andy's words from his story. He goes to lunch, when he comes back from lunch, he has a pink slip. It's a callback. Have you ever had one of those? It's a callback slip, and it's from the guy at the Calvary Chapel. Well, Andy thinks, "Uh oh, this is not going to go well," because we, we create traffic problems. Andy already knew we create traffic problems. There, are people who probably can't get to church. What do you think you're doing? You're taking over. You're the monster. He had all this stuff in his head, so he didn't want to call. So later in the day, he decides, well, before I go home, I'm going to call. So he calls the guy. He goes, hi, it's Andy Stanley. He goes, yeah, I, I'm so-and-so. I'm the pastor next door at the Calvary Chapel. He goes, yeah. He says, I just wanted to call to let you know, and Andy's thinking, oh, we're parking on the grass, taking over his lot, people parking in his lot, you know, using his restrooms, and then walking back to our building. You know, who, who knows? <laughs> people are people, and he do stuff. He goes, I just want to let you know, we are, really, we are really grateful you're here. In fact, you may be the answer to our prayers. We've been praying for a long time that we could reach this section of Atlanta, and that's been our prayer forever, that we could reach this area for Christ, and you may be the answer to the prayer. In fact, Andy, I just want to let you know that we're praying for your success And we think what you're doing is wonderful. And by the way, if you ever have a Sunday off and you want to come over, you could come over. And if you let me know you're coming, I'll let you preach. What if churches did that? I mean, think about that. That's a spirit of unity in the bond of peace, right? What if we chose, I'm not going to get into that fight. I'm not going to be divisive over denominations and before, all that other stuff. And you know, there's probably some legitimacy to every little group. But the world can't figure all that out. They just can't. But one thing that they know is true is when people learn to get along like family and get along sincerely with great motives and love each other like the father loves the son so the son loves his kids and we love the, the father back again. When, when that happens, that makes sense. And the world knows Jesus makes sense. And then they trust him. So here's where my, your assignment is this week. When you're driving through town, when you drive past a church, you know you're on your way to work, on your way home, keep one hand on the wheel, take the other hand and raise your hand and just bless them. Just say, God, bless that church. I, I don't. May they preach the word. May they love Jesus. May they be full of the Holy Spirit. May they... Any stuff that's happening that's unhealthy, may it detox from itself. But and We can't fix everything, but you know what we could do? We could pray for other churches to flourish for the glory of Christ because the mission is ours, not just ours, but ours. And if we did that, I just think how, how that would make sense of, of Christianity to those who are outside the family. And if it's your inclination to pray with both hands raised, pull over. You know, don't, don't drive that way. Some of you say, oh, I couldn't raise both hands because I'm texting while driving. Don't, don't do that. You'll, you'll go to heaven earlier than you're supposed to. All right? Let's take out our cards again. We're going to pray. And uh, Let's bow for a moment. And let's pray for those who are yet to receive Christ who just really need the Lord. And I'm going to ask elders that uh, are in the room and small group leaders, community group leaders, you're available, come to the front. And um, as we pray silently, maybe you need to pray with somebody or have someone pray for you. Um, We want to give you that opportunity as well. Just as you walk up to that leader at the front, just give them one sentence. This is what I need prayer for. They'll pray for that, and you go right back to your seat. If prayer is not your thing, you don't know how to pray, that's fine. Just come to the front, they'll help you pray. And then at the end of that prayer, then you'll just go back. And Lord, our prayer is for true unity. Not some kind of fake, plastic, looks like unity, cheap replica, but true unity in Christ. And as you pray, maybe your prayer is for other churches. You've been really, your nature is to be competitive, not cooperative. So your prayer is, Father in heaven, make me way more a team player. Christianity is a team sport. It's time I got on the team. Drop the pettiness, rejoice over the success of others, not just my own little world. That's only going to come when we know that we are really loved and that God doesn't love someone else more or us less. For some, the struggle is, I, I struggle with unity because I, uh, I'm at ought with a brother or sister in Christ. Then, this week, Lord, this is the week we're going to make it right. And if you can make heaven and hell that distinctly right, you can make heaven fit for us and we were bound for hell, you can correct that, then you can correct any relational piece. That's for sure. And as we continue to pray, would you stand to your feet? If you need prayer, keep keep coming. Stop coming just because we're gonna pray. Lord, there are days we're just embarrassed over our own pettiness. We we traffic in the negativity and the scarcity instead of seeing the gracious hand of our good Lord in heaven, a hand of abundance, not a hand of scarcity. We get territorial like little kids. Forgive us. Help us to forsake that. May we bless the churches around us. I pray for godly leaders who will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ next Lord's Day. I pray you fill them with your spirit, fill them with your word, that they speak not just with compelling words, but with the power that only the Holy Spirit would put in their lives. So they deliver the goods, because they are the goods. And may we be the church that fights the good fight and finishes the course and keeps the faith, Lord, we pray henceforth there is laid up for us a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge will give to us and not just to us but to all those who love your appearing because it's about you it's not it never has been about us it's always been about you which strangely ends up being good for us it always ends up being for our pleasure but it's, it has to be all about you Lord may we be all about you this week so Peace to the brothers and sisters, and love from faith with faith from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May there be a spirit of grace to all who love Jesus Christ with an undying kind of love. In Jesus' name we pray, and the church resounds with Amen. 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 Amen.